I'm Ed Gross, and you're listening to CloserWeekly.com's classic TV and film podcast, where we celebrate the golden age of television and movies, then and now. Today we're talking about you. No, not you, but you, the debut novel by Caroline Kepnes, about sociopath, psychopath, serial killer, and bookstore manager Joe Goldberg. He stalks his way into the life of aspiring writer Guinevere Beck and turns it upside down without her even realizing it. You is also the subject of the hit TV series that aired its first season on Lifetime and is currently available on Netflix, which will be streaming season two. And while we're talking about you, we're talking to Caroline, who provides some insight on how this all came about and reflects on why serial killers, real or fictional, seem to connect with a large audience on some level. I have to tell you, I, I started reading the first You novel because, you know, I'd seen the TV show. And I started reading the first yeah. novel. And from like the first or second page, my impression was, wow, she's going to some dark places here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like immediately Joe as a character just, just sucks you in. Um, I think that's kind of where I want to start is like, and I'm sure everyone else has asked you this as well, but why shouldn't I be a cliche? Where did this exactly. come from? <laughs> where, what generated this concept basically? You know, I went through a really awful period of my life where my dad was sick for two years and passed away. My mom had tremendous health issues, just a lot of grueling sadness. And then after all that, I had regular life issues, like my identity was stolen, why I do not know. Oh, wow. wow. And yeah, issues with my apartment. Like, so it was this combination, like I was in this place and I had, I had throat surgery and I had to be silent. So I had to communicate with a notepad. Someone asked me the other day, why didn't you just text? I'm like, that's a good question, but I don't know. <laughs> but you know, when you're out for coffee <laughs> right. with someone, you sit, you sit there with a notepad. Right. And this experience of being silent made me so aware and so inside my head. And I didn't want to be angry and bitter because it's like when you lose someone you love, you have to remember how lucky you were to have them. And that death is a part of life. And really, Joe was born out of this storm of emotions. And I'd always been a writer. I always wrote short stories. And suddenly after going through all of this, I felt this, this new voice in my head. And I just chased that voice because it was such a good release. I did try to write something that was more way too close to what had happened in real life about being a caregiver for my dad and all of that. And it was like, no, like I need that filter. It's one of those, it's the Stephen Crane thing of like your experiences need to go through the filter and that's where your imagination comes through. So with all the pain you were dealing with, this character of Joe, that's his birth? I mean, it's not like, oh, you know, you had this horrible thing happen to you and <laughs> you're flipping the tables on the person who did this terrible thing to you or something No, like yeah, wow. no. It's yeah. always like to me, it's that it's always hard to like pinpoint how your imagination works yeah. because at the same time we were living like social media. It wasn't what it is now, but it was a major thing. And my dad was always like, don't put me on Facebook. Like, don't put that on Facebook. And then when he was gone, and also when we were going through all of it, you know, when you're sitting in a hospital room, my mom's in one wing, my dad's in another, right. you go on Facebook, everyone's like, best day ever. You know that they're not having the best day ever. <laughs> and I mean, hopefully some of them are, but all of the men mental gymnastics that this social media has introduced are really fascinating to me. So part of my exercise with Joe was like, here's someone who uses this social media not to socialize, he's antisocial. And he uses it to like incriminate other people and judge them. And I think we all have moments of being in that place. And it was my kind of like creating this character who dwells in that place, who never wants to be 
like at equal with people. He wants to be a little bit removed. He's a real voyeur watching them. Absolutely. And the sort of the rationalization, this is what I find so fascinating about the character is this rationalization he does this, everything that he does wrong, he rationalizes it, that it's the other person's fault or it's Beck's fault or whoever's fault it is, but it's never Joe's fault. Never, ever, ever, ever. It's like this. And I think that's what gymnastics. makes the reading and the, the, yes, the reading and writing experience are exciting because we all do that on some level. We just don't take it to that extreme. So you find yourself identifying with that and aware of the times that you do it. And then he's killing someone and you're like, wait a minute, I don't do that. Right. And I, I mean, it's one of my favorite lines from the movie, the big chill when they're talking, when the guy says, but could you get through one day without a juicy rationalization? Like we all do this <laughs> and we right. all feel sometimes like the world is against us and that we are the victim. And so it's just taking all of that energy and really amping it up to being the defining energy in his life, which is to me a terrifying, horrifying thing because it's relatable on a small scale. You know, he's not like, he's not out for blood. He doesn't want to kill people. He always feels like, my God, I have to save the world again. I have to do this. Like, right. you know, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, Benji peach Candace and you know, is, is, I mean, mm -hmm. it's just crazy. It's like, you read these things. It's like, Oh my God, he just is like totally justifying this. That's just crazy. Right. <laughs> yeah. And that's what was interesting to me that after I wrote it, um, a couple of friends and people in publishing would say, oh, it's a novel about a serial killer. And I was like, oh, oh, my God, it is. Because I genuinely, in order to, like, capture his voice, I really didn't think of it that way. And I didn't know exactly what I had written. And it was like, oh, like, that's that's the beauty of that creative process, you know. Really? See, and I would have thought that, you know, like I watch the ID channel all the time, you know, and that sort of thing. I would have thought that the whole serial killer thing was something that was sort of baking in the back of your mind, but it wasn't. In a way, I mean, I did like I, I had studied psychology in college and my favorite course in that department was Abnormal Psych, of course. And I've always been drawn to those kind of shows and stories and, you know, how someone becomes this monster. But in the creative process of taking on that perspective, it's like he doesn't think of himself as a monster. So it's moving aside all of that analysis that comes from an outsider and getting inside that brain and seeing how it works, how he maintains this perception of himself as someone who has really bad luck and also who feels ultimately more like a veterinarian among humans, where a veterinarian sees a cat that's in pain and is dying and the veterinarian puts the cat down. Oh, wow. And it's a, you know, it's a hard thing to do, but ultimately you're sparing someone their pain. I'm like every murder that he commits, he does walk away thinking that like that poor person, they weren't able to live life and to respect the gift of life. And so that's where I like to get like that. I guess that's why I'm a writer and not a psychologist, you know, because I like the creativity of imagining like what goes on in that head. Like, <laughs> but do you ever write something that comes out of that head and just look at yourself after you've written and just like, geez, where the hell did that come from? Oh, absolutely. That's where like it's always perplexing to try and put it into a few sentences because it's like a whole everything I write. I feel like writing has always been my entire life, an absolute compulsion I am an easily scared person. I did a Skype interview the other day and they asked me to show them this talking koala doll that I have. And I get the doll and I squeeze it and it talks and I scream like that's the story of my life. <laughs> so it's like that's just the way that my brain works where I'm always imagining the worst and what could go wrong and how why some people fall into a dark way and why others don't. 
Absolutely. But now you create this character, you create, you write this book. And I think writing this first book especially has got to be the purest expression of you. I mean, not you, the book. I mean, yeah. you, you. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so there's no movie. There's no sequel. There's nothing. It's just that. What happens when you finish this book and it gets published and the, the new life for it begins? It is so absolutely fabulous to let go of something and let other people take it and decide what it is. Because to me, that's the magic of like, I'm a big pop culture person, a book person. And I love that, like the book club of Twitter, where people get to discuss the way that they see something. And it was, it was called horror. It was called romance. It was called a thriller. It was called erotica. And I think that that's the magic because you don't get to sit next to your book necessarily and tell someone who's reading it what it is because it, it exists to them. You know, it's, it's like, it's now it's public property. And then to meet up with people with Greg Berlanti and Sarah Gamble who understand it so well and are want to capture the spirit and, sh and make their own version of it is that's, it's like an extension of this amazing book club. So I feel like so thrilled years later that now so many more people have read it and are, you know, discussing it and riled up about it. It's just, it's the best. So you don't feel like, I know there are a lot of creators who, when they write a book and the book is then adapted to television, I know you've got some background in TV writing as well, but they get very defensive. They get, very, or if they don't get defensive, they go, well, that's the show. I've got the books. And they kind of dismiss you know, it. You're, you sound like you're much more supportive. I'm supportive. I mean, it's I, like, it's, it, to me, it's wonderful. It, like, I love to see the story. So many more people introduced to the story. That's magic to me. And I feel like the books are always the books. The show is always the show. And as someone who used to work at EW and loves like compare contrast, like I love to like see different versions of things. So I don't expect it to be exactly like the book. I love that it's its own entity. And I feel like I feel very possessive when I'm writing and I'm like, what am I going to do with this chapter? Like, that's what I control. I enjoy that part of the control. And I, and I like working with people who are ferociously controlling of their own work. You know what I mean? Like that's the, that's where it's a really good partnership because I know that they're just as passionate about telling the story and introducing things and mixing it up as I am when I'm in the writing process of my books. So when you're sitting at home or on the train or wherever you may be watching this mm -hmm. series unfold, this first season unfold, what is your feeling when you're watching these characters now brought to life? They're going to be different. Obviously, I've already read in the book. There's obviously differences between the show and the movie. I mean, in the novel, I'm sorry. Uh, what is your feeling as the creator of this thing when you're watching this thing unfold and watching the direction they've taken it in? It's thrilling because it's there are certain aspects that are straight out of my imagination. Like the first day of shooting, um, the, one of the, the first thing we shot was up, it was Benji's office at Home Soda. It's one of those things that I pictured in my head. I did not elaborately describe it in the book. I walked onto that set. I started shaking, like tearing up because it's like, oh my, this is exactly as I pictured it. Exactly. And that's the level, like that's the beauty of the brain hive. And then when there are other elements that for me and TV make for like, as, like make for like a Marsha Cross taking the wig off level of, oh my God, like the teeth in later in this, in the episode when Beth finds Benji's teeth, it's so exciting to me, you know, like, yeah. because it's like, we still, we're never going to not have the book. And now we have this other world and I'm like more, the more Joe, the better. Now, are you involved with the show at all? Oh yeah. And, um, I, I read the scripts. I, yeah, I'm in touch with Greg and Sarah in the first season. I wrote an episode 
And that was a terrific experience of being in the room with this amazing group of writers, all of whom is like, you know, devoured the book and know it inside out and bringing their own experiences into it. So I loved that. This season, we have our first table read tomorrow. So I'll be going to that. That's very exciting. Yeah. And yeah, it's a, it's an ideal relationship. And in season two now, is season two veering off from the novels, basically? Yeah, it's it's based on Hidden Bodies. So Hidden Bodies takes place in L.A. And Joe's drive for coming here is different than in the books. But it's the same Joe in the sense that he gets to L.A. And, you know, it doesn't feel like home. And in the book, he meets twins named 1140 who come from a very, like, well-to-do, unique family. And he meets those same twins in the show. And then and their family owns a bunch of grocery stores and we have that too. So like there's a lot that you'll recognize. And then there are there are twists, which to me makes it exciting for the reader because it's that idea that as soon as you think you're comfortable and you know what happens next, there are going to be things that are different. Right. So personally, like I, I like that, especially where we have such, you know, we had such an amazing first season and going to have all these people coming up and whether or not you read the books, you're going to be surprised. Now, do you see Joe as a character that you, I mean, you have a background in, you know, you have some background in TV, so I would imagine that the idea of a character continuing is appealing. Is that true in the book form as well? Do you see Joe as somebody who can move forward into additional novels, additional stories? Oh, yes. I've started working on the third book, and <laughs> okay. I always knew, like, at least three, like, it was, to me, like, the titles are different, but it was You Love Me, so three separate stories each one, like knowing what themes I wanted to delve into. So I'm working on that now and finishing another book. And yeah, these are good times. (laughs) It sounds like it, you know, when you hit, Mm -hmm. I'm changing, jumping off Joe just for a second here, but uh, because, and you, when you hit the New York, because you hit the New York Times bestsellers list with this, right? Um, I haven't. I'm USA Today bestseller. USA. I'm sorry. Sorry for the people who are listening. I screwed that up. Uh, (laughs) But... (laughs) Uh, so for you as a writer, what is that feeling like? That's just, it's exhilarating because I mean, every, there are so many books. I read so many books all, you know, that I love over the years and you, I I can, I'm always thrown when people ask for books because my head explodes with so many. And it's just so exciting to think of people reading your work because part of my morbid personality is like, I'm going to die, but the books will be here forever. And there's nothing dreamier to me than the idea that someone could possibly be reading my books in like 50 years. You know, that's like the greatest feeling. So when they're selling and that means that they're going to print more, it's just, that's, that's a really just restoring, comforting, exciting, good feeling. Cool. Yeah. Very good. You know, now I'm going back into the character of Joe here for a second. It, he, It's interesting. In reading the book, there's not much redeemable I'm finding about Joe so far, like in the sense of he's he's crazy and, and he's just doing crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you watch the show and suddenly you've got a character that is bordering on the lines of a Dexter or Norman Bates where you kind of want him to get away with what he's doing. You kind of, there's something appealing about him. Have you found that as well? Or do you think he's totally likable in the books? (laughs) I mean, I have so many readers, like before the book came out in September, 2014, people started reading it in the summer, getting early copies. And I got overwhelmed with, I love Joe. I love Joe. I think it's an, it's an intimate experience reading a book. And that's where some people read it and feel like they really relate to some aspects and he makes them laugh and they feel attached. Other people read it in the perspective that you're talking about with, oh my God, this guy is a psycho. Right. And that's again, like where I love the litmus test of books. 
And in the show, I feel like it, it works really well in the show because of that element, because of seeing him with Paco that like, oh, we have this guy who you could better imagine like meeting him and liking him. So to me, like they're, that's a way in which they're different. And I love the way they complement each other. And for me, the book, it's the relatability, not the likability. Like it's that some, right. when he starts ranting about things that you relate to, it doesn't mean that you like him, but relating to someone is the initiation of siding with them. Right. Cause then you have to keep reminding yourself, no, 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 no. He's, he, he's not the good guy. <laughs> he's doing wrong things. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. You know. Yes. And about what the way that we, we judge women more harshly than men sometimes too, where to me, like one of my driving forces writing this book was after going through all this trauma, watching so much, comf- so many comfort movies and thinking like, oh, these women, they always have to be depicted as just so sweet and so perfect and so forgiving. And it's a lot of pressure on women and it's a lot of pressure on men to, for men to not t- take no for an answer, for women to forgive all that he does. And I wanted to kind of turn that inside out and see what it would be like if we have this leading lady like Beck in the book who's, you know, she's flawed. <laughs> yeah. and, and in that way, Joe's clearly flawed, but when he's getting frustrated with her, that's the magic to me of like, wait a minute, you know, why are we judging her for being a young single woman when he's murdering her friends? Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> Anyone who gets in his way, bye. <laughs> you know. Yep. <laughs> and that was the other thing you captured. One of the things that I thought you captured so well is like, I remember that one of my kids, uh, his, his girlfriend was like friendly with another guy, just friends. And the guy would like touch mm-hmm. her shoulder and do these things. And I would say to say to her one day, because we were having this conversation about it. And I said, listen, you don't understand guys. I said, you do anything to a guy. You touch his shoulder, you touch his leg, you touch his arm, you touch his hand or whatever. He thinks you're in love with him. You want to sleep with him. Mm-hmm. And this is what I found. <laughs> so you're not arguing. Uh, but this is what Joe suggested to me. And that's what I really liked is he, you captured that element of anything Beck does. He reads it as she wants him. She wants him now. You know, that, yeah. you know, she wants him now. Take me now kind of thing. No matter what it is, he, she does. Yeah. And that's why as a woman writing this, it's a lifelong issue of like the way that we're directly and indirectly told to be like respectful and afraid of male emotion. So that let's say like when a quote unquote nice guy likes you, that you're made to feel guilty if you don't like him back. And when you turn someone down, you accept the possibility that he's going to go crazy because again, male emotion is considered this, like this thing that you cannot control. And yet you're also in control of it. So it's a very mixed message. It's very murky territory. And I think for men and women, and it's always there subtly, sometimes it's louder, but there's this blaming thing, this idea that, Oh, no one ever likes a nice guy. So I wanted to take this guy who thinks of himself as a nice guy. And sometimes he is, but many times, he is very much not and deal with what it's like to be a woman dealing with someone who constantly is reminding her, but like, look, I'm the good guy. I'm the good guy. You should like me. Right. Absolutely. Which can mm-hmm. be infuriating in its own way. <laughs> I think. Right. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. With, you know, the whole idea I was, I was talking about before with Joe being the, uh, especially in the show being this guy who you people get behind and all, what is it do you think about, the notion of these serial killers that be in, in general, I mean, yeah, we could be talking about Dexter, Norman Bates, Joe, we could talk about Ted Bundy. What is the, and, and I watch the ID channel with my wife all the time. What do you feel is the fascination though? Why are people drawn to these stories that really, 
you have to almost remind yourself that this is reality. You know, you're watching a real thing and you have to say, oh, wait a minute, this is this is being presented as entertainment, but it's not, you know, like when you watch ID. Right. Yeah. So I mean I think that we're we're all we're all afraid of something like this happen to us. And would we recognize this person? And it's it's so dangerous to like turn them into famous people. Like I think what's happening right now with Ted Bundy, I mean I get it, but it's it's scary. You know, it's like it's he's he's a real person. Dexter is a fictional character. Right. And for me, like it goes back to that relatability versus likability or you know, or or moral justice. Like Ted Bundy is a psychopath, real life person who destroyed lives, families, like that's, you know, that's in a, in another box. And for me, like, all I can say is that what influenced me the most was growing up watching these women like Brenda Walsh and Kimberly Shaw and Amanda on Melrose Place just be horrible and how much I loved to watch that and how exciting it was because there's so much pressure on a woman to be the other way, to be the Allison, to be sweet, to be the Kelly, to be, you know, likable, but we're always drawn to these you know, nasty women. So I think that the pendulum is always there. It's always swinging of what's going to be popular at this particular moment and could talk about that forever. I mean, for me, like it has to do with social media, being in this culture of communicating so much all the time. And we're hearing, we're hearing people's thoughts that we don't know all the time if we engage or we're voyeurs, like intaking all these thoughts and not engaging, which leads to a whole other mess of problems in your head of sorting all of this out, where you're, we're having a lot of imaginary conversations with people that we think are very bad. And I think that that's why the Ted Bundy of it all is, is big right now, because when you, a big, another big part of writing you was the idea that you create an, a person in your head when you start to fall in love, especially if you do it Joe's way, where you're doing the research on them before you actually know them. So you're idealizing them. You're creating what you want. You're projecting. And this, again, is what we do every day when we have so many enemies in our lives that we're constantly hearing from, that we're constantly grappling with what they say. I'm thinking of Trump right now. <laughs> there you so go. We are, yeah. So because there's so much conversation that's, re, that's extremely dark in nature, it's natural to be thinking about evil men serial killers. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, and you know, you, the, the whole social media thing too, and then I'm, going, I'm flipping this back to like you as an author. Mm. When you said you before, it's like everyone's talking about it and there's all this conversation going on. But what do you take away from the social media? Because look, I've seen social media where it's very praiseworthy and I've seen where it's very mm -hmm. critical and, and sometimes where it's like, you know, vitriolic. I mean, it's just people are crazy in their negative responses yeah. to things. What are you dealing with? I mean, how, how is all of that impacting on you? That, I mean, it's, I think we're all dealing with it in one way or another. And, you know, like if you choose to say something that might offend some people or some bots and then you get an onslaught of negativity, that's an overwhelming thing. And that's the strangest part of modern life that it's in this phone that I always think about didn't exist 15 years ago at that level, like that right. you have the opportunity. If you wanted people to scream at you, you know how to make it happen like that. <laughs> and then it's emotionally jarring. And then you, you know, move away from it. And like anything, the emotions pass. But again, like, I think that that's part of what's so fascinating about these times and why all of my books have an element of social media, because we're still, it feels so ingrained, but it's still so culturally new that the, the, the exercise of processing the emotions of figuring out 
how to what's real and what's not real is all brand new. And I can't wait to see all the books about it. And, you know, in 40 years, because I, everyone again, like is so new to it. And it's this new job, this new realm of communication that we don't, that now feels in a permanent part of life. And yet again, brand new. <laughs> no, it is absolutely. But do you ever find yourself the victim of it, so to speak, where people are attacking you? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, that's always, that's always comical to me because it's a thing you see jokes about a lot of like on the author level of like, don't tag the author. And it's interesting to me, the person who's tagging the author to say something that, that they don't approve of. I mean, I don't know, like, I don't like things all the time and I don't feel compelled to tell the person that I didn't like it. Right. So that psychology is more than anything. It's just interesting to me. And again, makes me curious about like what goes on in those heads because everyone has the right to dislike, to like, it's just fascinating to want to have that discussion with the source, but there's that it fosters social media fosters the sense of intimacy. And I don't know. I mean, when I don't like something, I want to talk to someone I know about it. I want to see what they think. I wouldn't want to talk to the person who made it because I know that they're attached to it and they made it and they have their own issues with it. So yeah, it's just more like fascinating. And then of course, going back to what you said before about praise, I'm always laughing when I retweet nice things that like, this is just the sort of thing that Joe would be like slaughtering me for. You know? Like, <laughs> right. Oh, look at you. Like, you know, someone calls you something and you're, you know, <laughs> you're by retweeting it, you're saying you agree. But I look at it as like, Oh, this person took their time to say something. So I'm, you know, I'm appreciating that. Right. But I see where it could also be interpreted another way. And that's the Joe part of my brain. It's like, yeah. <laughs> you know, it also amazes me that people now, because, you know, you say how, you know, everyone's connected because of the internet I and mean, where people have said, you know, the whole social media thing really connects people. But I love the fact, not really, that people <laughs> suddenly feel like they have the right to say anything they want without filters. And I don't right. know, And that scares me. It's very scary. And I worry too, because of people when they're in a dark moment, like on the one hand, it's nice that people can reach out. On the other hand, I'm always like, oh, I want to give this person a diary because some people also that's their style and they're comfortable doing that. And it works for them to communicate that way and cope that way. And other people you see like, oh, the fact that you can't delete things that you can, but like once it's out there, it's out there. And when you see people in an emotional state, say things that you know that they are going to regret that they meant to say to that one person. That's another like mixed bag of issues. That's that's getting fuller every day. Oh yeah, absolutely. Hey, look, I had an mm -hmm. interview with uh, Brendan Fraser once talking about how he almost played oh. Superman and some guy took the quotes and molded it in such a way that he was attacking Superman returns. Uh, the movie Superman mm, right. And I wrote the guy and I said, listen, you took my interview and you did this. He goes, yeah, but I hate that movie so much. Sorry, you got caught in the shrapnel. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, like, no. <laughs> no. Wrong no. answer. <laughs> that's what I mean. That's, I mean, it sounds yeah, I silly, mean, it, but it, yeah, it's it's frustrating. It's the dehumanizing thing of me where my whole life I've resisted every single form of technology. Like until I had a 30th birthday where it was kind of a, like a lot of people didn't make it because there was confusion at the door. And I, at the time, everyone was texting, but me, and I didn't like texting. And I was always like, I'm never going to do this. I like to, I need a voice. I need to feel immediacy. I don't like it. And after the next, like feeling like, Oh, this one didn't show up. That one didn't show up. I found out like, Oh, they were texting me, you know, like they thought that I was blowing them off. Right. So then I got into texting and for me, it's been 
the same with every issue. I'm like, I'm not going to do this. And then I do it. I'm not going to do this. And then I do it because like, I also always look back at my college reunion Um, every year after graduation, they have this dance, this campus dance and it's enormous. And when I was in college, the magic was that you had to make plans to meet by the statue at midnight. And it led to this like sense of romance and mystique because you could bump into people. There was no way to find them. It was, you know, it was all very, very inherently like romantic. Five years later, reunion, everyone has phones. All of that mystique is gone. Right. And we live in a different world. And because I'm like old enough to like, remember when it was like that, I'm always like also sympathetic to people who are younger because they don't have those memories necessarily. And they don't know how it was. So if you don't know how it was, you know, you really can't know. And then like, it's the same way that I text. So I was the same way with Twitter, with Facebook, with all of it. I begrudgingly get into it. Then I'm an addictive person, then become addicted. And I'm like, Oh, so this is my brain now. But so now you're totally hooked on all these things. Was, but yeah. Now you're hooked yeah, on all these things yeah. you resist. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's funny, though. It's like there's something to be said for a simpler time in some ways. Not that I'm anti-tech because I use the stuff all the time. So I'm not mm-hmm. going to pretend that I'm like above it all or anything. But I remember like when, when the yep. Star Wars special edition came out back in 97, my friends and I were online for like five hours waiting to get in that movie. And even though it's mm. much better to be able to just book your seat now, just go online and book your seat specifically. Mm-hmm. There's still something about the communal yep. experience of being online for four hours. I don't know. I kind of miss a little bit, <laughs> just a little bit. Yeah, no. And I, so I, I was at Netflix today talking to them about that exact thing where for me, like the magic of television was knowing that like everyone right now in this huge area of land, like people I don't know, we're all sitting down to watch Family Ties at the same time. That right. was amazing to me. And that made it feel like theater. And that was always the magic of television. And I think the past few years, as we've like the more we've moved toward Netflix and binging, binging, the combination of binging and social media is how we're regaining that theatrical experience of everyone being in the dark together, maybe not at the exact same moment, but in the same couple of weeks. Yeah, I'm like, it's human nature when a story is serialized to want to experience it with other people. And like with movies, I feel like it's the same way of the dark theater. Like I would still rather go to the movies to watch a movie. But with television, the television makes me love technology because I was like, oh, I missed this. Like, I don't like to watch. I never, okay, so I don't have a DVR. I don't have a TiVo. That's one form that I've permanently resisted because I like commercials. I like anticipation and I will watch things on demand, but I don't like, for whatever reason, recording them. But I'm like Netflix, all, all, you know, Hulu, all of it, they allow you to be in it with everyone. And that's great. Except for the negative side of binging in my mind, the one negative is when you say, oh, did you see? No, 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 I didn't see it yet. Don't talk to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's yeah. a lot of that now. The spoiler. Yeah, I feel like none of us, none of us know what to do with that. Like, yeah, I mean, I have like three books out. One of the, you know, the most recent one was out this summer. And today someone was like, oh, you know, don't spoil it. And I'm like, okay, but when, like what I, all that I said was on the jacket copy. So right. I'm not giving anything away. And like an incident that happened at the beginning of the book, but it is confusing that way because you, you don't want to spoil things. But then when everyone's talking about them, you want to talk to and it's tricky. Absolutely. And I'm also someone who like spoilers have never really bothered me because if I'm whatever I watch, like if I'm engaged and I'm in it, I, I'm still going to have that gut punch reaction. Absolutely. Like I feel like my mind will make my make it forget and be swept up into it. Oh, yeah. 
but I get where other people don't want, yeah, just don't want to know. Yeah. Oh yeah. I don't want to see that trailer. I don't know. I want to know anything. (laughs) Right. (laughs) About it. You know, now you've done different (laughs) writing and all, I mean, so you're doing the novels now, but you've written for television. Like you said, you wrote for EW. Are you just like, have you always been sort of all over the place with the writing? And I mean that in a good way, rather than saying, I'm going to be a screenwriter. I'm going to be a novelist. I mean, what has been sort of, yeah, I mean, it's my whole life. Like since I was a kid, I was writing short stories all the time. I, I, and I, you know, always wanted to write for TV and movies. I, I loved TV and movies. I loved books. I love it all. So short stories were my consistent, like, cause it's so satisfying to write a short story and finish it. You can send it somewhere and it's kind of a, a nice form of instant gratification. And then you learn so much immediately and it makes you want to write another because the minute you hit send, you're like, Oh no, like this is what I did wrong. That's what I did wrong. Right. And then in college, I studied American civilization, which is like kind of the major for someone like me, like you just described, who likes different fields. And I've always liked the mishmash, the mixtape of mixing up things together. So this major had one requirement. I got to take classes in all different fields. And I did two independent studies, one on South Park, one on, on repetition and VCRs with child development. And then it was like journalism felt natural to me because you got to write all the time and I also needed to earn a living. And um, it was great writing experience because much like short stories, as you know, like you write an article, you, you get that red pen edit back, you have to finish it, and then you have no choice but to move on. So for me, it was great preparation for novel writing because you can't get, you can't write a draft of a book if you can't get through it. And journalism teaches you that you have to get through it. You have to finish. Yeah. <laughs> and you have to give it to an editor and the editor is going to tell you what's wrong with it. And they're going to have ideas and on you go. So I feel like I draw on that experience all the time. And then when I worked for Entertainment Weekly, I started writing spec scripts and it felt natural to like show them to showrunners that I'd interviewed that I connected with. So that led to TV writing which led, yeah, which it's, it's always felt to me like one form of writing informs the other. And that's where, when people say that like, oh yeah, it feels like you feels like reading a TV show. I'm like, of course it does. Because like I've, you know, written for TV and watch a lot of TV and I like, I write what I want to read. And I feel like I write for people who like, who like it all. So that's where my books have that feeling, that cinematic television feeling and then are full of book references to all the books that I love too. Right. No, absolutely. You know, I also wonder when you sat down to write the novel, the first novel, what was your expectation when you started and what was the revelation when it was finished for you? You know, it was again, like I was working for Yahoo at the time and I was uh, kind of on call and writing. It would be a thing like, here's this trailer. Like we need this, you know, written up in the next half hour. So there was great energy where I would do my job and get it done as fast as I could, as good as I could, and then get to jump back into the novel. So it was a very, like, I didn't have the luxury of, like, swaths of time. And I created those when I needed to, to, like, get through it, you know, and of course, like, when I had free time. But I liked that energy because while I'd be writing, doing my journalism, the book would be swimming around in my head and I'd be realizing, like, oh, I got to fix this, I got to do that, I want to do that. And it was that great experience of, how energizing it was for me. And it was nice to feel when I finished it, that people who read it felt equally energized because it really like that writing process of the intensity, especially because of that, that, you know, the present tense of it, I felt like that was in there and it was like, Oh, okay. Like that's, that's my voice. That's a lot of my short stories that I've written have been in the present tense. This is what feels 
natural to me because for me, writing is a very like inherently present tense activity. So that, that was exciting to feel like, okay, that, that got in there. Like that's right. the part of me that like other people feel too. Yeah. Now with bouncing around, like, like we said before, short stories, novels, writing for TV, but now so much is happening. Like it feels like very accelerated now with the books the you know, the, and the TV show and all that stuff. What kind of impact has this success had on your life personally and professionally? Oh, it's wonderful. I mean, I spent the past couple of months writing a pilot with John Stamos, who's just a wonderful, smart, great person, where I met him, you know, because he played Dr. Nikki on the show. Right. And we just kind of like connected and, you know, now we're, so we wrote a pilot, we're writing something else. And it's that thing of like, it's been a wonderful impact of like, okay, I have time to do this right now, so let's do it. And now I'm going back to work on books. And I feel like it's been a great impact on my writing life for really like seizing the moment and writing what I want to write right now and feeling like, Oh, and the greatest thing in the world is that people are going to want to read it. (laughs) You know, like who knows if something will happen with it, but it's like a nice, it's a nice feeling that way. And then personally, I mean, over the years, something I didn't expect going in just because I, I didn't know much about book publishing. I've met so many close friends who are authors and that's been the most rewarding, enriching thing. And another magical part of the internet that uh, like many of them I've gotten to meet in person at events or like if we've, you know, managed to get it together to get together in person. But I love that like you can talk to other people about writing. You can read their books and talk to them and become friends with them. That's, that's fantastic for me. One of those things that I didn't know if that would happen. And I'm so grateful for it's a personal, huge personal reward. Do you ever have to sit back in amazement at everything that's happening? Mm-hmm. Yep. Every day, like I wake up, I'm like, oh, this is real. Like this isn't, you know, I didn't dream this up. I didn't make it up. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually happening. That's, yes. Very mm-hmm. good. Yeah. I was in the grocery store last week or a couple of weeks ago and there were girls who were talking and, you know, just like younger girls. And they start talking about you and Joe Goldberg. And I dropped a piece on the floor like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> because I go back to when I was writing the book and I would talk to my friends about Joe. And they're like, wait, he's not a real person, right? I'm like, no, but he is, you know. But for you, he is, sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, right. Yeah. So it's so, yeah, it's a it's just rewarding on all fronts. And then and then also to hear over the years from so many people who have gone through really traumatic times, it's like whether relationships that were unhealthy. I've heard from so many women who dealt with domestic violence and feel like this book helped them cope with their experiences, helped them explain their situation to other people, people who are recovering from addiction, who find a lot of comfort, people who haven't read a book in years, but read this book, people who read all the time, but loved it. It's like, it's so, that's the ultimate thing to me to feel like your work is doing work and helping other people while entertaining them. That's, that's my dream. Head over to Amazon or other booksellers to check out you, its sequel, Hidden Bodies, and her third novel, Providence. And while you're at it, why not subscribe to this podcast, share it with your friends, and give us a five-star review. Joe Goldberg thinks you should. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.